Welcome to Article One, a show about lawmakers, legislating, and the politics that make Congress work. I'm your host, Molly Hooper, longtime Capitol Hill reporter, sharing with you my one-on-one conversations with Democrats and Republicans who are in the Senate, House, on the trail, and behind the scenes. On today's episode, I speak with veteran Democratic Rep. Jose Serrano of New York's 15th District. As a chairman of one of the appropriations subcommittees, Serrano is considered a so-called cardinal, and we discuss that work, the importance of earmarks, his fond memories of President-elect Joe Biden, and the role of the Congressional Hispanic Caucus in this wide-ranging interview. I spoke with the chairman shortly before the election. Now, on to our conversation. Chairman Serrano, I'm so glad to be talking to you for on the record, of course. Uh, I'm talking to the dean of the Congressional Hispanic Caucus, and you're an outgoing member, but you've been in the House for 30-some-odd years, and, you know, you've had quite a storied career. You're the chairman of a subcommittee of the Appropriations Committee, and, you know, you've had all this experience. What do you wish you knew as a freshman about being an effective member in the House? Well, I've, I've served now 30 years in Congress and 16 in the State Assembly before I came to Congress. That's 46 total. Mm-hmm. So I had a little advantage over other people in terms of having some legislative experience. Mm-hmm. But what I didn't have is that when a new class comes in, like the class that comes in this year, the person who will replace me and other people that are new will go to uh, what's called a congressional school, you know, congressional college. Right. They'll, they'll get briefings. They're told everything from how to ask the question to how to ask permission to ask the question. <laughs> you know, to ask. Point and of I, order. Point of order. That didn't happen to me. I got elected on March 20th of 1990 in a special election, uh-huh. replacing someone who had uh, left I resigned. Then, for a couple of days there, I was breaking down the office I had in Albany as an assemblyman, and something interesting happened. Uh, Tom Foley, the speaker at that time, Uh uh, called and said, okay, you'll be sworn in on the 27th. And you and Susan Molinari. Susan Molinari was elected that same night I was elected in a special election. To replace her father. Guy Molinari, okay. Right? Mm-hmm. So I said, can you swear me in on the 28th? <laughs> he said, why do you want to be sworn in on the 28th? I said, because that's the year, the date, March 28th, that my mother, my brother and I came to New York to meet my father, who had gotten there a year before, to get an apartment and to get a job and so, so on. So... <laughs> March 28th, in terms of my getting to Congress, was the beginning of it, you know? Uh, exactly. It's like your, yeah. your first step in the House, in, in both senses. <laughs> exactly. So that was March 28th of 1952, you know? And right. so I, I got sworn in on March 28th. They gave me a voting card, and right away we had a series of votes, because they usually swear a new member in right before a series of votes. So I had to look to Charlie Rangel and Eddie Towns and other people that were there to see what we were doing because we had no, I had no clue. (laughs) 
Right. And you didn't and, and back then you didn't have the internet or or the Twitters to find out what's going on. Yeah, I mean you, Not at you, all. Had, no. you had to trust your your buddies, your delegation. Exactly, my delegation. And they were they were very good at it, keeping me in touch. And then when I went got back to the office, uh we had set up an office already in Longworth where all newcomers come. Okay. And my office was in Longworth. Uh, and uh, I told the staff I had hired a person who had been with the previous congressman. And I, she said, there are things to read. I said, well, just pile them on top of my desk. Well, I had no clue of how much she was talking about. When I came, there was if I had been sitting in my chair and you came into my office, you couldn't see me. But there were all these stacks of bulletins and papers and the legislation <laughs> piled up to the top, so somebody should have warned me that it was that much. It took me about a month to get through some of it, you know. <laughs> oh my gosh. And, and, so I wish I would have had I wish I just would have had the the ability to be told what Congress works like, but you can't have that when you come in a special election. No, you can't, but this is interesting for people who do come in special elections because you don't get you're right, you don't go through the normal, you know, orientation process. Not at uh, all. You don't get to vote for your speaker initially, you know, if, if your exactly. party's in power. So so you really you're just kind of thrown in, thrust in and it's it's trial by fire it sounds like. Exactly. Yeah. So then you know I got assigned to committees. Mm -hmm. I began to work the committees, but uh we we had some people, like I said, we had one advantage or one equalizer. Uh huh. Which 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 the fact that I had been a legislator Right. In Albany for 16 years, and I had been chairman of the Consumer Affairs Committee, huh. and before I left, I had been chair of the Education Committee of the New York State Assembly. So I knew something about debating and about legislating, but uh, it, was, it was a whole new thing, you know. And well, well, actually, that that brings me to a, a point. Um, I actually just asked Greg Walden this question. Um, you know, since you did have that experience in the state legislature, you knew parliamentary procedure. And I, I asked him, I said, well, what's your favorite parliamentary tool? Do you like the, do you like to reserve your right to object? Do you, are you a point of order kind of congressman? What, which one do you enjoy employing the most? Well, when, when the other side is going on longer than I had allowed them, I had given them you know, well, the gentleman yield to me, uh -huh. and uh, uh, then they go on and make a speech, yeah. and just making their point. So, you know, reclaiming my time, which Maxine Waters became famous for, and that's <laughs> used that's quite, used quite uh, frequently, and I, I'll do that all the time. Right. You're very, whenever I see you in, in the committees, you're very courteous, and, well, I say that in a lot of the, the appropriators. You all seem to be... I always like to describe the Appropriations Committee as sort of a different breed of committee, where it's, you know, it tends to be more bipartisan because, you know, you have to get together and you have to you have to produce the results. All of well, well, you're absolutely right, and it's one of the things that I wish more people in the media. I think in Washington they understand, but not at the local level. At the right. local level, uh, we have people who wonder, you know, what is it that you guys do? I said, well, I'm on the Appropriations Committee. And they only know that when the funds are cut off, you know? Right. So <laughs> right. 
So I go, I go through the whole thing. I say, well, the appropriations committee is composed of 12 committees, subcommittees. And don't be fooled by the name, by the title subcommittee. A subcommittee that handles $72 billion, like Common Justice CJS, it's not just any subcommittee. I mean, that's the budget of most, larger than most cities in the nation, you know? Well, and it's, I mean, and when you think about the agencies, I mean, you have the Justice Department, so that's funding for the FBI, that's funding for, for the FBI. You have Commerce, so you have Commerce Department, obviously. So I have the, all of the Justice Department, including the FBI. That, the FBI in itself, and that's the point I try to make locally, the FBI in itself could be uh, a committee. Right. You know, the, right. And the, uh, so we do all of the Justice Department. We do all of the FBI. We do the Census Bureau. Right. That's about, yep. And we, then we do everything in the Commerce Department. Then we do NOAA. Oh, that's, yes, well, the science. Of course you do NOAA. So the national... Then we do, then we do NASA. That's right, too. I mean, so, you, guys, you guys have a lot of big programs, and, and it is $72 billion that you're working with? Yes, okay. this year. That's, that's a lot of money. That's a lot and of money. That's a lot of money. And I was watching the... Um, uh, the House Rules Committee just tells you what kind of reporter I am. I mean, I love my C-SPAN and I love my House Rules. I, I can't get enough of it. But they were holding uh, McGovern and Cole were holding a hearing, a Members' Day hearing, for you know looking ahead to the 117th Congress. And you know there were a number of members there who were kind of calling for congressionally directed spending to come back, aka earmarks. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, because, because you know, when it comes to having to fund the government, people, or at least, again, this is, a, my podcast is called Article One for a reason. You know, the legislative branch is, was the first branch of government. It is the first branch of government in the Constitution. And the taxpaying dollars come to D.C., and you guys are the ones that have the power of the purse. And exactly. it, seems, it seems like when you when you eliminate earmarks, you're sort of taking away money from districts that may need it, and the people who would know that they need it are those lawmakers that represent the districts. What, where do you stand on earmarks? Oh, absolutely. I, I was very much in favor of earmarks, and I used them properly during the years, and they, they took it. Right now, there are a lot of people calling me up, organizations, and saying, we want to honor you at our virtual gala. And I mean a lot of them. I just made a list of the ones that I have pending. There's 10 of them. Ten. Ten so far that we haven't done. We did some oh. already. I saw, you know? I just saw the CHCI one. That was really interesting. Oh, no, but at that's... the local, yeah, yeah, that's very nice. At the local level, oh, I see. for instance, the Bronx River, through earmarks, we were able to clean up the Bronx River. And that kind of set off or, or grew, enhanced a uh, environmental movement very much needed in the Bronx. And other programs were created using federal funding. And then once they got federal funding, they would get local funding. Right. And so now you have all these other educational arts programs, athletic programs, that are an offshoot of a community that wanted to clean up a river. Right. And how did we clean up the river? We got anywhere from, uh, some people say 30 million, I have to check, 30 million or $50 million over the years to fund programs for cleaning up the Bronx River. To the point 
Molly, where there was in the beginning of our nation, New York City was a beaver health uh, business place. That's what they did. Right. If you look at New York City's seal, it has a beaver on it. Well, a beaver hasn't been seen in New York for 200 years. And when through earmarks, we cleaned up the river and a beaver came back. So what did they name it? Jose. Jose! And Jose, is... has a, Jose has a Twitter account. Oh, oh yeah. I was going to check out Jose's Twitter account. Do you ever retweet Jose? I don't know that I have. <laughs> He's always <laughs> asking for money. <laughs> <laughs> Jose, Jose now has a, a neighbor that showed up also. There are two beavers. So listen to this. This will teach me a, a teach any young person a lesson uh-huh. about being humble. Uh-huh. So when the second beaver showed up, the people who were overseeing everything, the Bronx Zoo, uh, called me up and they told me, listen, they said to me, we want you to name the second beaver. I said, no, that's not right because the beaver first beaver was named after me. Right. It wouldn't look nice if I went and now playing. So what did they do? What? They, they did what I didn't have in 1990. They went to the internet. Oh. And they and they had a contest on what to call the second beaver, right? Uh-huh. So since the internet is mostly young people, what do you think the second beaver is called? Barack. Justin Beaver. Oh, Justin! <laughs> okay. I'll give him that one. That that's good. Well, well. So next, so you have to have a name ready for the next one. Well, for a while, Justin Bieber was more popular than Jose, but that only lasted a very short time. <laughs> so Jose got written up in National Geographic, and, and people have come to film and tell the story about the river. And the river became, you know, when you think of a river in the countryside, right. you think of waterways. Right. You know how important they are to the people that are there. But when you think of the Bronx River, people would ask you, there's a Bronx River? And people would ask me on the house floor, what is this for? I said, this is a clean up the Bronx River. There's a river in the Bronx? There exactly. sure is. Mm-hmm. I mean, the difference is it's got cement on each side. Right. But now it doesn't. Now there's a, a pathway. There's a place where people walk, where people canoe, where people fish. We're not suggesting people eat it yet, but you know. <laughs> no, but 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 the, but you make a good point. It seems like you know, once once that happened, it sort of sets off, as you said, these offshoots of of, of economic progress. You know, progress in the area. Um, and allowing if, and allowing kids to participate in things they didn't do before. For instance, I'll tell you about one offshoot of the Bronx River cleanup. Mm-hmm. There's a program called Rocking the Boat. B O A T. That's good. Rocking the boat. I gotcha. And they make their own boats, and then they take them out on the river. Oh, my gosh. Have you ever been in one of those boats? Not recently, no. <laughs> well, you're retiring, so now you can enjoy yes. retirement. <laughs> yeah. But, no, and actually, if you think about it, especially in this age of the coronavirus, when so many people have had to stay at home and or when they go out to really separate from other individuals, it's nice to kind of go to a place that's more of a sanctuary that has that has things growing like trees and plants right. and um, nature because because really New York was so hard hit by the coronavirus right. that 
and and whenever I go to New York, and I was going up to New York a lot last year for, during the impeachment, I would go to work with CBS News, and I just walking on the streets. It's really exciting. There's a lot of people, but I can't even imagine being socially distant in that situation. Well, it's horrible. How about the subway? I, got... I I can't. I it just I couldn't imagine. I can't even imagine how difficult it would yeah. be. And, um, you know, actually, on that note, how is your district doing right now in, in terms of the coronavirus? Your, your district was pretty hard hit in the beginning, right? It was, it was hard hit at the beginning. Uh, New York State was the hardest hit in the nation. Right. New York City was the hardest city. And the South Bronx is the hardest area. Ugh. And so stepping out my front door was inviting trouble. Right. Um, so... I was going to make a point here. Uh, so all these offshoot programs, what you see now is also a lot of celebrations that took place uh, before or during the cleanup of the Bronx River began to grow. Mm-hmm. Like there was the uh, the, uh, the the mermaid parade, I mean the fish the fish parade, where people where people would dress up. One year I was uh, King Neptune, you know, and. Uh, and we marched, we marched from the river to a community center called The Point, which brings in a lot of kids and a lot of music and arts programs and everything. But all these groups started working together, all because federal dollars were brought in to clean up the Bronx River. The Bronx River became the, the symbol of what a community can do and a survival. So here you have people whose grandparents, very interestingly enough, had come from Puerto Rico, so they knew rivers, they knew waterways. Right. But And who and African-Americans, whose grandparents had come from the South, mm-hmm. and maybe some parents had come from the South, they knew waterways, they knew rivers, but they didn't see that in New York. You had to go take the subway you know, or a bus and go far away to go to a beach, and a river was very hard to go to only along the highway. Right. All, of a sudden, all of a sudden, they're canoeing on the river. They're having concerts on the river, near the river's edge and everything. It's a whole new situation. <laughs> you know, again, and that, again, goes to that point of an earmark, because you were in place and you knew what was happening on the ground, and it wasn't a federal agency that directed that money there, because that money, they could have directed that money anywhere. And through the years, and through the years, we won money for housing programs, for nutrition programs, for arts programs, right? Uh, all kinds of programs. And I'll tell you one that I wish I had the information to give you for sure, but I don't know. Okay. And that is, we got money to fix up stairs that we had in the northern part of my in the, near the Yankee Stadium area. Mm-hmm. These stairs come from one avenue to Jerome Avenue. And they're cement stairs, and they were falling apart. So we allocated money uh, from earmarks to repair the stairs. Okay. Now, I'm trying to find out if one of the stairs I repaired, I repaired, <laughs> taking credit for now, is the one the Joker dresses on. Oh, you mean in the in Batman? Yeah. Oh, we'll have to find that out. Because well, he dances. He dances on a set of stairs. That's right, he does. And somebody suggested there was one, and I don't know which one it was that we funded, because we funded for cleaning up a lot of the stairs. 
But then people came and painted up. And now, for a while after them, when the movie came out, it became a tourist attraction. People came from everywhere to take a picture in the stairs. Well, and you know what that means? If people are all coming all over, from all over, that means there's people in the district to, to buy snacks and to, to buy tours, you know, like souvenirs and whatnot exactly. to bring the dis- money to the district. And you have, a, you have a very unique district in that I think that, if this is still correct, it's one of the smallest geographically, and I, I'm, I'm citing Lucille Roy Ballard. From- it, it is. I don't know exactly what uh, place, where it plays nationwide, but I've always said that you can actually, if you're in good shape, Walk from one side of my district to the other. Right, but but the, but it's also it's also a, um, a lower economic district, isn't it? The medium income is, is relatively low. Yes, it is. And you know, so getting those programs back, I imagine, would be very important for the residents of your district. Absolutely. And Absolutely. you know, so so is it fair to say that your advice for you know? You're the future members of Congress and the House is bring back earmarks. Bring back earmarks, definitely. You know, there's a process that we had in place to make sure that uh, money was going where it was supposed to be going and spent where it was supposed to be spent. There was a whole process where we had to uh, search the Internet for board members of an organization mm-hmm. and, and uh, uh, the vetting process. Was really serious, but I would say I would say bring them back to the next Congress. Bring them back. Put in a secure program like we had in place, a process of making sure the right people are getting the money. Right. And then, and then let the local legislator. You know, everybody who runs for Congress and everybody who serves in Congress says, "I know my district best." Right. And then they don't want to have earmarks. Well, that's the best way of helping the district you know best. Well, that's what I'm thinking, too. It's like, listen, I send my congressman to the House for a reason, and I pay a lot of money in taxes. And you know what? I want that money coming back to my area. Exactly. <laughs> so go get it done. I, that actually goes to another question. I've, if, if I am a young member of Congress, a newbie, how do I get a seat on the Appropriations Committee? What, seat, what steps do I need to take to do that? Well, it would have been- it would help if your if your delegation uh, had seats before that doesn't have now. Ah. For, in, for instance, uh, I will leave a seat on the appropriations. Mm-hmm. Will that go to New York? That depends on leadership. The New York delegation will be fighting to hope and make sure that it goes to New York. So what I would say to new people is... If you want to get on appropriations, understand that it's not that easy for a freshman to get on. In fact, I don't remember the last time a freshman got on. Well, actually, no. You know what? It was Scott Taylor from Virginia. He, he, he beat, but he, he, but he had to do a lot of work to get that seat. I'll put, tell you that much. Yeah, and begin, begin to, uh, you know, I got it a couple of years after I was on board, and I came on the same day that Nita Lowy got on. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. They flipped the coin, and she won the toss. She had seniority over me by one. Yeah. Ah! Well, now she is – well, she's also leaving. So that that's two seats open for New York. 
a lot of decisions are made by where you spend your money. I think Nancy Pelosi says that a lot, right? Like our priorities, you can tell our priorities by where we spend our money. And if you don't provide any money for border security, or if you don't provide any money for, if you, you know, ICE or whatever it is, that that that's sending a signal that's saying something. Can you give me an example? And I don't have the bill in front of me. Well, the George Floyd bill, Policing Act bill. Right. Certain tone, certain beliefs that there should be no chokeholds, so on and so forth. Now, if you look at my bill for the Justice Department, I said the same thing. Mm-hmm. But I spoke in dollar terms. Exactly. In order, for, in order for you to get money from this account, you have to ban chokeholds in your community. Right. Right. In order for you to get money from this account, you have to contribute to a national registry on bad behavior by cops. So here you had George Floyd bill to set out what we wanted to do, and then the appropriators paid the paid the paid the balance. Yeah, I like that. Well, well, and that's that's the thing. That's why I think there is sort of a misunderstanding about. Uh, you know, among the public about what exactly, why it's important that if an authorization bill doesn't necessarily make it into law, that doesn't mean Congress can't um, implement a policy via the budget, via how you spend your money. Because if, if, as you said, if certain departments don't ban chokeholds, they are going to lose a lot of money, you know, if that makes it into the final package that Congress sends to to the president. And it might not be for more than a year or so, but at least it's a policy statement that's being made and has to be implemented in order for departments to get the funds that they, they need, or you know. And and that's a very powerful thing. Mm-hmm. And what, I, happens, what happens is that... Uh... You'll hear during debate and appropriations committee, especially. And it's kind of funny because we kind of look at each other and I know that we're laughing inside. We say, sir, usually the minority telling the majority, you're uh, legislating on appropriations bill. Sorry, I'm laughing, but yes. You say, and? (laughs) (laughs) Well, exactly. Again, it's your priorities and your policies. It's how you spend your money. And it's it's just like your parents saying, okay, you can get your ten dollars, but you're going to have to do your chores first. No chores, no money. You know, and it sort of it, it sort of it, it it directs behavior or it incentivizes behavior. Um, and again, that is it's a very powerful thing. What I'm wondering is, um, do you think that the George Lloyd provisions will make it into a final package that goes to the White House this year? I don't know. I'm hoping. I mean, it's, it's a strong position on our part, mm-hmm. and Senate Democrats also support it. So, uh, And there are some, I can't tell you how many, Republicans who know that change has to come. Well, that's right. And, I mean, and the thing that's interesting about the appropriation that you're talking about is that it's sort of it's not it's a little bit more piecemeal than say the full authorization bill, right? Because right. because if you're banning chokeholds, you know, for these departments, that's different 
necessarily that's different than an authorization bill that just flat out rules it out for how you know forever. And um, I think that there's some Republicans who may get on board with that, but they'll also get on board because there's other programs that they need funded. And, um, you know, in that appropriations bill, which, uh, which makes them always very fun to watch, not, I suppose I shouldn't say fun, but for, for those of us who love watching Congress and how Congress operates, it's always, it's always intriguing and enlightening to see which provisions made it into the final appropriations measures and which did not. Exactly. And also what you see is you see members of the minority party who may not scream as much as they could maybe or they mm-hmm. they would want to because they know there are things in that bill that helps their area also. Mm-hmm. For instance, we treat NASA very well. Right. Well, NASA doesn't have installations in the South Bronx. <laughs> and NASA does very well in, in other states where there are Republican members and Democratic members also. Sure. But, but again, I, I think that was, if this is when you have 435, well, 535 individuals coming to Washington, D.C. from all areas of the country representing their state and or, I mean, or a legislative district, you have to get business done somehow. You have to compromise. There has to be give and take. And it might be, it might be a hot button issue for two months or something, but, but it's something that when it comes down to it, one in, one legislator and senator needs money for the X. Another person needs money for Y or one needs to, to deny money for Y. And you just, you have, you, you have to compromise. There's give and take. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, you, I think, you know, it's, it's always, people have always said that the appropriators get along better than other committees. And I can't really tell you why, but I know we have a respect for the fact that the committee does the work it has to do. And the committee has a very important role. And the committee is in the Constitution. One could argue that once you have your money in place, the only bills that have to pass the House is the appropriations bills. Right. Absolutely. And exactly. And and so that's why it's always must-pass bills. You guys have must-pass bills, or else right. you have a government shutdown, as we did. Was that last year? <laughs> Every year. No, but it feels like – no, but, but, I mean, you know, over the border wall funding, it just – it feels like over the past two years, there's been so much that's happened between Capitol Hill and the White House. I can't keep track sometimes. I just can't keep track. And that actually brings me to another point. From what I understand, were you in the financial services industry before you were – you, were you a banker for a while? I was a bank teller. Oh, oh, a bank teller. Well, there you go. Um, I was just going to say, because you were, I mean, you've been in New York your whole life almost, well, except for when you were born, of course, in Puerto Rico. But, you know, I mean, Donald Trump has always been around New York for the most part. Did you have any interactions with him before he became president? You know, it's funny. Not funny. Maybe it's tragic. But I might have met him, but I don't remember meeting him. I don't remember being at any event that he was at. Maybe he was. 
but I don't know. I mean, I really have a president. We have a president from New York, and I never met him, to my knowledge. Right. And not, that, around. not that that takes away or gives, adds to him, you know, but I don't think I have. Do you, what is it about Donald Trump that that is so, I guess, when I talk to members on the, on the Capitol Hill, there's, there's usually a visceral reaction. Either you love him or you hate him. Not you in particular, but members. And it just seems like even when Barack Obama was president, there wasn't the same kind of loyalty or opposition. And I'm just wondering what you make of that and how how that sort of personality that the president brings to the executive branch has changed the way that House and Senate have operated these past few years. Well, I think what's happened with him is that he brought a style of uh, nastiness that we've never seen. And I think the American people are still trying to figure out what to do with him. In the meantime, he appeals to people's worst instincts. And those who support him strongly out in the street, I'm not talking about legislators. Right. The legislators who support him strongly are people who are afraid of a primary. I mean... There's been a lot of that. Yeah. And so, but he gets away with stuff that ordinarily you would not get away with. Uh, the way he treats people, the way he, this thing of telling a reporter to take off his mask or her mask, you know, uh, mm-hmm. uh, wanting to debate in person, wanting to take a, a ride and put the Secret Service at, at risk. And it's, it's like we've gotten used to his behavior to a point where people just either accept it or they don't know how to defeat it. Right. Do you, do you think... And I've never seen anything like it. I mean, I've been in public office 46 years. Right. And I've seen some tough and semi-nasty people in politics, but never anything like this. And, uh, and again, it's, it's just a visceral reaction for, for good or bad, bad. From people, it's, it's not, you're never really like, oh, he's okay. No, There's, nobody is in, in the middle. Nobody's middle of the road on him. And that's, that's just such a such a uh, maybe that's why it's, these times have been so unusual. And then you couple that with this pandemic. You know, I was watching. I was watching. Uh, watching. I was looking at a picture. I have my iPhone of Barack Obama and I and Michelle mm-hmm. at the White House. And then I was looking at some pictures that I had of Barack Obama with his daughters and with the First Lady. And I'm saying, did this really happen? Did we have such dignity and respect? <laughs> <laughs> and well, we did. Well, here's the question, though, because it sort of seems like Congress has abdicated some of its power to the executive, not just not just over the past few years, but even when President Obama was in office and to a certain extent, George W. Bush. But but I think this was just starting to happen at about that time. How, how can Congress reclaim its authority, do you think? 
It is the legislative branch of government, Article One, but until Congress members, Democrats and Republicans, team up to, to take on some of these issues like immigration, some of these more lightning rod topics, the executive and the courts will decide what's going to happen with those policies. It feels like. Yeah, I think I think uh, throughout the years, some members of Congress have kind of just allowed the executive branch to get more power than it should. And sometimes you do it because you don't want confrontations that are unnecessary. And sometimes maybe they think the executive branch has all the power. Uh, you right. know, out, in the, out in the street, as we say. Right. This president certainly gives that impression. Trump is a phenomenon, and for for depending on which side you stand regarding him, um, but you know Congress Congress has given up some of its authority, and it just seems like uh, it's unclear when what what will compel it to regain well, I don't, that authority. I don't know that, you see, when you say Congress has given up the authority, if you look at the leadership we have in the House now with Nancy and Steny and Jim Clyburn and so on. I mean, they 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 stand their grounds and they make things happen. Sometimes, sometimes when chairmen, and this is, it doesn't matter. Republic if a Republicans are in control in Congress, if a Democratic president, if Democrats are in control in Congress, and there's a Republican president, it sort of feels like the people who are in control of the committees don't necessarily reach out to their counterparts and other members on the committee of the opposite party and say, we have got to get, we have to demand these documents, we have to demand these te- this testimony, and, and try to get bipartisan buy-in when they are demanding that the administration send up people who need to answer tough questions. And, yeah, and some, just, some, some members are not willing to do that. In other words, some members true. are not to abide by it. No, that's true. And I'm wondering how difficult it is when you are in the majority how difficult it is to get members of the minority party to sign on to those kind of requests. Because it sounds like when, when I ask members in the Republican Party, I'm like, well, why didn't you sign on to this request? And we'll hear, oh, they, the Democrats didn't include us. They didn't even reach out to us about this. Well, that's not true. That's is that not, not true? true? I mean, they, okay. they, they, they've made it very clear that they're not going to take on this president, you know? Okay. Cause, and that's the thing that I just kind of wonder about. Because it seems like there are some people – uh, you know, who who might be willing to entertain. Yes, but they get drowned out by by the larger crowd. Right, that's true. That's true. It's it's. Oh, it's by the just, louder crowd, not the, by larger, the louder by crowd. The louder crowd. The louder crowd. Yeah, I gotcha. So so, what are your what do you think is going to happen to an economic stimulus bill or a fifth COVID package? I understand that the president has pretty much said we're calling off the talks, but is that true? Well, he he's back on wanting the, the talks now, right? Kind of. He, yes, a little bit. He wants he wants individual bills to pass. But do you think what what do you, what what do you think is going to happen with this? Do you think there will be any sort of CARES package five? I would hope so, Lavi. Uh, I, I I think that they have to realize that they have to come to the table to talk. I mean, and then the president. Somebody has to tell them, and who would to take care of it? Because uh, Mnuchin, and, and to my understanding, or what you guys reported, Mnuchin and, and Pelosi were making progress. Right. And then he put a stop to it. So. Well, that's this is great. Thank you 
so much, Chairman. I really appreciate talking to you, and I'm um, I'm sorry that you're retiring. I understand the situation. I mean, thirty some plus years. That's that's a lot of time. Forty six in public office. Forty six in public office. That's a lot of time to to dedicate to serving the people, and that's a lot of work. That's a lot of traveling up and down. What do they call this? The corridor. The not the, the Acela Corridor. Yeah, and that's how I travel. <laughs> that's, that's right, the Acela Corridor. Um, and That's where know, Joe Biden and I became friends. Is it really? What's your favorite Joe Biden story? Do you have oh, any favorite? The fact that it, there was a time there where no matter what day of the week you took the train, he was on it, <laughs> going back home. But, well, but I, my favorite, my favorite story about him is not just a story about him. It's a style, you know, it's just, he's, he's a, uh, I remember I was at the, uh, was it the chambers that I was at or, or at the convention or something? Mm-hmm. And he gave, he came through a crowd and gave me a big hug and so on. And he always gave me the impression that I was just talking to a next door neighbor, you know? Me too. And I was a reporter. Yeah. Um, oh, I do. I do know one more question that I meant to ask you, because I, something that I try to explain when I'm doing my my TV hits on CBSN and you know is, is the value and the role of the congressional caucuses, like the the congressional member caucuses. And of course, you've played a, a, a key role in the congressional Hispanic caucus. Now you're the dean of it. What, why are these caucuses important, and what kind of power do they wield? Well, they're important because they represent information, if you will, mm-hmm. about needs. They have information about needs in certain communities. So the Black Caucus has that information, and we have that information. We talk to people all the time uh, in our communities, uh, businessmen and uh, media people who come to talk to us. Yeah, we do that all the time. We talk to people in the field and say, okay, how should we be talking to Hollywood? So who do we invite? Rita Moreno and a group of other people, you know? Exactly. You're going to love Rita Moreno. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, she's incredible. She's incredible. Um, but, okay, so that's interesting. So you, you guys represent information so that you can go into Speaker Pelosi and say, listen, this this is what's going on on the ground. But I think I think I think what's happened. You see, and this is where things may have changed. So we're back there on was the a time when we had to go into the speaker years ago and say, "Here's the problem." Now the leadership seems to be attuned to the fact that when they hear something is happening at that caucus, they go find out what it is, and then ah. we work together on it. So it's a different, it's a different stuff. But but you're right on the numbers. If if it came to an unfriendly thing, where Hispanic caucus and the Black caucus, for instance, say we're not voting for this, you know, like, on the wall, right? You can count on one hand how many votes you're going to get, if any, from those two caucuses on the wall, right? So that kind of guides where the Democratic Party goes, even if not everybody agrees on it. I gotcha. I gotcha. Now let me just tell you, since I know you're closing, let me just tell you. If you had asked me this question, okay, there's, a, there's a lot of things that I've accomplished in appropriations. And uh, a lot of what I accomplished, I accomplished not only for my district and for the 50 states, but I think I changed the language in appropriations. 
But I started telling people, it's not just the 50 states. There are 50 states in the territories. And now more and more and more, you hear people, even Republicans getting up and saying, well, you know, state and territorial governments need this and need that. That language wasn't there 10 years ago. It's interesting thing that you say that because I have noticed Republicans saying the territories, I mean, I've noticed both parties saying territories more often, but I really have noticed Republicans saying that more often. Um, and actually that leads me, here's my last question for you, because I've been meaning to ask this because you're, you're a big proponent of Puerto Rican statehood. No? Right. Right. Well, one of the fears that Republicans are sort of stoking out there in in the Twitterverse and whatnot is that if Puerto Rico and D.C. become states, that the government will be democratic forever. Is it? What do you make of those claims? And if President, if, if Joe Biden does become president and there's a Democratic Senate in the House, how likely is it? Do you think that Puerto Rico would become a state? Very, very, very strong. Okay. Chuck Schumer already came out in favor of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, Obama's in favor of it. Biden has said that he personally supports statehood, but it's up to the Puerto Rican people. Okay. And they have a vote in November. <clears throat> but I'll tell you something, and again, check on this. Don't take my word for it. Okay. But I understand that when Hawaii and Alaska came in, the reason they came in together was because it was believed that Alaska was going to be Democrat and Hawaii was going to be Republican. <laughs> Sorry, that's, I got what you're, I see what you're saying. There is no guarantee of what it'll be. Right. Right. Okay. That, that, I gotcha. Because as it, as it stands, now, who's, why who's, who's, who's president at the time of statehood may have something to do with it because uh, some would say that African Americans were Republicans for a while after Lincoln. Right. Right. Exactly. So, so you never know, but but this is really. This but is really I think great. the language has changed. Now it's the territories are mentioned freely, and I know that I I did that a lot in the Interior Committee, and, and to uh, to Chairman, we had Simpson, and who was the other Calvert? We're very good at that. Oh they yeah, Calvert. Yep. They changed the language of the Appropriations Interiors Bill to say and the territories. That is, and, and like I said, I have noticed members on the floor saying yeah. that, and or not necessarily just on the floor, but <clears throat> the only boast—the only boast I will give you is that I think I had something to do with that. That was Jose Serrano of New York's 15th district. A big thanks to Paula Amador for setting up the interview, and thank you so much for listening to the show this week. You can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. You can write to me at article1podcast at gmail.com. My Twitter handle is at Molly Hooper. My Instagram account is Molly K. Hooper. On the next episode, I speak with GOP rep Ted Yoho of Florida. We discuss the aftermath of his end of July exchange with Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, his take on the election results, and what he will miss most when he leaves Congress at the end of the year. Until then, I reserve the right to revise and extend my remarks.